Welcome to today's true crime story is a Lindbergh kidnapping part two. Trial and execution. Trial. Hoffman was charged with capital murder, which meant that a conviction would result in a death penalty. The trial was held at the Hunterdon County Courthouse in Plumden, New Jersey, and was soon dubbed the trial of the century. Reporters swarmed the town, and every hotel room was booked. Judge Thomas Whitaker Trenchard presided over the trial. As Jennifer Rice to publish the Hopman story in their newspaper, J. Edward J. Riley was hired by a New York Daily Mirror to serve as Hopman's attorney. David T. Willis, attorney general of New Jersey, led the prosecution. As against Hopman included $20,000 of ransom money found in his garage and testimony alleged handwriting and spilling some of to that found on the ransom notes. Eight handwriting experts included Albert S. Osborne pointing out similarities between the ransom notes and Hopman's writing specimens. The defense called an expert to rebut this evidence, while two others declined to testify. The latter two demanded $500 before looking at the notes and were dismissed when Lloyd Fisher, a member of Hopman's legal team, declined. Other experts retained by the defense were never called to testify. Based on the work of Arthur Kohler at the Forest Products Laboratory, the state introduced photographs demonstrating that part of the wood from the ladder matched a plank from the floor of Hopman's attic. The type of wood, the direction of tree growth, the milling pattern, the inside and outside surface of the wood, and the grain on both sides were identical, and four oddly placed nail holes lined up with nail holes in Joyce in Hopman's attics. Additionally, Condon's address and telephone number were written in pencil on a closet door in Hopman's home. Hopman admitted to police that he had written Condon's address. I must have read it in the paper about the story. I was a little bit interested in keeping a little bit of record of it. And maybe I was just in the closet and was reading the newspaper and put it down the address. I can't give you any explanation about the telephone number. Additionally, a hand-drawn sketch that Willow suggested was the head of a letter was found in one of Hotman's notebooks. Hotman said his picture, along with various other sketches contained therein, had been the work of a child who had drawn it. Despite not having an obvious source of earned income, he had earned enough money to purchase a large $400 radio, nearly $7,000 today, and to send his wife on a trip on a trip to Germany. Hopman's pause identified as a man to whom the ransom money was delivered. Other witnesses testified that it was Hopman who had spent some of the Lindbergh Gold certificates that he had been seen in the area of the estate in East Amwell, New Jersey, near Hopewell, on the day of the kidnapping, and that he had been absent from work on the day of the ransom payment and quit his job two days later. Hopman never attempted to find another job afterward, yet in Continued to live comfortably. When the prosecution rested, the defense opened up their case with a lengthy examination of Hopman himself. In his testimony, Hopman denied being guilty, insisting that the box found to contain the gold certificates had been left in his garage by a friend named Isidore Fish, who returned to Germany in December 1933 and died there in March 1934. Hopman claimed that he had one day found the shoebox left by Fish left behind by fish, which Hopman had to store on the top shelf of a kitchen broom closet, later discovered the money, which, upon counting, added up to nearly $40,000. He further claimed that since fish owed him around $7,500 in business funds, Hopman kept the money for himself and had lived on it since January 1934. The defense called Hopman's wife, Anna, to corroborate the fish story. However, upon cross-examination, was forced to admit that while she hung her apron every day on a hook higher than the top shelf. She could not remember seeing any shoe box there.
Later, rebuttal witness testified that Fish could not have been at the scene of the crime and that he had no money for medical treatments when he died from tuberculosis. Fish's landlady testified that he could barely afford a $350 per week room. In his closing summation, Riley could argue that the evidence against Hotman was entirely circumstantial as no reliable witness had placed Hotman at the scene of the crime, nor were his fingerprints found on the ladder, the ransom notes, or anywhere in the nursery. Appeals. Hotman was convicted and immediately sentenced to death. Hotman's attorneys appealed to the New Jersey Court of Errors and Appeals when in the state's highest court. The appeal was argued on June 29, 1935. New Jersey Governor Harold G. Hoffman to secretly visit Hoffman in a cell on the evening of October 6th, accompanied by a stenographer who wrote, who spoke German fluently. Hoffman urged members of the Court of Errors and Appeals to visit Hoffman. In late January 1936, while declaring he held no position on the guilt or innocence of Hoffman, Hoffman cited evidence that the crime was not a one-person job and directed Schwarzkopf to continue a thorough and impartial investigation in an effort to bring all parties involved to justice. It became known among the press that on March 27th, Hoffman was considering a second preview of Hoffman's death sentence, but was actually seeking advice concerning the legality of his right as governor to do so. On March 30th, 1936, Hoffman's second and final appeal asking for clemency. The New Jersey Board of Pardons was denied. Hoffman later announced that his decision would be the final legal action in the case and that he would not grant another reprieve. Nonetheless, there was a postponement when the Mercer County Grand Jury and the Commission arrested Trenton Attorney Paul Wendell requested a delay from Warden Mark Kimberling. Kimberling, Kimberling. If this final day and this final stay ended when the Mercer County Prosecutor informed Kimberling that the Gangerian had adjourned after voting to discontinue its investigation without charging Wendell. Execution. Hoffman would turn down a large offer from a Hearst newspaper for confession and refused a last-minute offer to commute his sentence from the death penalty to life without parole in exchange for a confession. He was elected on April 3, 1936, just over four hours after the kidnapping. Following Hoffman's death, some reporters and independent investigators came up with numerous questions regarding the way the investigation was run and the fairness of the trial. Questions were raised concerning issues ranging from witness tampering to the planning of evidence. Twice during the 1980s, Anna Hoffman sued the state of New Jersey for the unjust execution of her husband. Both times the suits were dismissed on unknown grounds. She continued fighting to clear his name until her death at age 95 in 1994. Alternative theories. A number of books that have studied Hoffman's innocence, generally highlighting inadequate police work at the crime scene, Lindbergh's interference in the investigation, the effect, ineffectiveness of Hoffman's counsel, and weaknesses in the witnesses and physical evidence. Ludovic Kennedy, in particular, questioned much of the evidence, such as the origin of the latter and the testimony of many of the witnesses. According to author Lord Gardner, a fingerprint expert, Dr. Erastus Mead Hudson, applied the then rare silver nitrate fingerprint process to the ladder and did not find Hoffman's fingerprints even in places that make the ladder must make places that the maker of the ladder must have touched. According to Gardner officials refuser, officials refused to consider this expert's finding and the ladder was then washed of all fingerprints. Jim Fisher, a former FBI agent and professor at Edinburgh University of Pennsylvania, 
has written two books, The Lindbergh Case, 1987, and The Ghost of Hopewell, 1999, addressing that what he calls a revision movement regarding the case. He summarizes, Today the Lindbergh phenomena sick are a giant hoax perpetuated by people who are taking advantage of an uninformed and cynical public. Notwithstanding all of the books, TV programs, and legal suits, Hotsman is, is as guilty today as he was in 1932 when he kidnapped and killed the son of Mr. and Mrs. Charles Lindbergh. Another book, Hotman's Letter, a step-by-step analysis of the Lindbergh kidnapping by Richard T. Cahill Jr., concludes that Hotman was guilty but questions whether he should have been executed. According to John Riesinger, in Massa Detective, New Jersey Detective Ellis Parker conducted an independent investigation in 1936 and obtained a signed confession from former Trenton attorney Paul Wendell, creating a sensation and resulting in a temporary stay of execution for Hoffman. The case against Wendell collapsed, however, when he insisted his confession had been coerced. Several people have suggested that Charles Lindbergh was responsible for the kidnapping in 2010, Jim Bob which is sick which implied that the baby was physically disabled and Lindbergh arranged the kidnapping as a way of sickly moving the baby to be raised in Germany. One theory is Lindbergh actually killed the son of the prank gone wrong in the crime of the century of the Lindbergh kidnapping hoax. Criminal defense attorney Gregory Algren follows that Lindbergh climbed the ladder and brought his son out of the window but dropped the child, killing him, so hid the body in the woods and then covered up the crime by blaming Hoffman. Robert Zorn's 2012 book, Cemetery John, proposes that Hoffman was part of a conspiracy with two other German-born men, John and Walter Knoll. John Zorn's father, economist Eugene Zorn, believed that as a teenager, he had witnessed a conspiracy being discussed. In popular culture, record label of Charles A. Lindbergh Jr. by Bob Ferguson. In novels, 1974, Agatha Christie was spoiled by sickness as a case when she described the kidnapping of baby girl Daisy Armstrong and her Hercule Poirot novel, Murder on the Orient Express. 1971, Thomas Strand's novel, The Other, is set in 1975, where the kidnapping is a much-discussed recent event that leads to a similar crime. 1981, the kidnapping and its aftermath served as the inspiration for Maria Sanders' book, Outside, Over There, in the 2009 documentary, Tell Them Anything You Want. Sanders says that he has a, a bit of success with the case of the Lindbergh baby since he was a youth. 1993, the novel Along Came a Spider by James Patterson begins with a fictional account of the Lindbergh kidnapping. 2004, the novel The Plot Against America by Philip Roth includes the Lindbergh kidnapping as a plot point for this alternative history of anti-Semitism proceeding and then worsening during a Lindbergh presidential administration. 2007, the novel Blazer by Stephen King. The, the novel Blazer by Stephen King under pseudonym Richard Bachman was listed based on the Lindbergh kidnapping. 2007, a talented by William Norris is a journalistic investigation. Who really kidnapped the Lindbergh baby? 2013, The Aviator's Ride by Melanie Benjamin is a work of historical fiction told from the perspective of Anna Mara Lindbergh. 2016, Cold Boarding and Edna Ferber Mystery by Ed Ifkovic is a murder mystery centered around the trial and uh, film and television in 1976. In the television movie, The Lindbergh Kidnapping Case, Anthony Hopkins played the role of Bruno Hoffman, while Cliff the Young played Charles Lindbergh, and C.N. Barbara Allen played Anne Marl Lindbergh. 1991, in the film Ernest Goes to Camp, the titular character of Ernest, played by Jimmy Clancy, has taken the Lindbergh baby. 1995, in the Simpsons episode, Mother Simpson, Abe Simpson claims to be the Lindbergh baby. 1996, The Lindbergh Kidnapping was the subject of the 1996 Golden Globe and Emmy nominated TV movie title. Crime of the Century, Bruno Hopkins was played by 
Stephen Ray and his wife Anna by Isabella Rosalini. Nineteen ninety nine and the family gathered Brian and Love when Lois says it's time for Stuart to start potty training. Christmas, you know what happened to the Lindbergh baby. This leads to a cutaway of Charles Jr. potty training and accidentally flushing himself down the toilet, much to the smith of Charles and his wife where they make the kidnapping up. Mrs. Lindbergh then says, What about Amelia? She saw the whole thing. Where is it revealed? Amelia Hart Earhart also witnessed it before Charles says, You leave her to me, implying he was the cause of her disappearance. 1999 in the Dilbert series episode, Little People, Little People, Catbird then went to call him. Dilbert into his office, has him sign a convention claim responsible for, among other things, kidnapping the Lindbergh baby. Dilbert appears and animates all, although Catbird forced his signature and then public broadcast Dilbert signing of the confession. 2009, in the American Dad episode, Wiener of Our Discontent, Stan and Roger encounter a man living out of the storage unit adjacent to Roger's Fortress of Solitude unit, who asks him, Excuse me, gentlemen, if I just found out on the Lindbergh bed, who do I tell? 2010, in Fringe, when Peter returns to a Los from where he was kidnapped, he has disappeared and said to have made international news in response to Peter's so on the Lindbergh bed, we only discovered that no such kidnapping occurred in that universe. 2011, the Clint Eastwood direct, directed film J. Edgar includes reference to the Lindbergh, Lindbergh kidnapping. Josh Lucas plays Charles Lindbergh. Dan Harriman was cast as Brita Hoffman, and Stephen Root was cast as Arthur Kohler, an expert on wood who testified at the trial. 2013, on July 31st, the previous program, Nova aired Who Killed Lindbergh's Baby, an interview conducted by the former FBI forensics expert John Douglas. Douglas explored the incident and trial of Hoffman. And then investigators about who else was likely to have been an accomplice. 2016, in another episode of American Dad, Fight and Flight, Stan tries to help Steve do a video project on Charles Lindbergh, which includes so fictitious visits events, including the kidnapping. 2018, in an episode of Saturday Night Live, Kate McKenna's character, Debet Goldrie, said she was the babysitter of the baby and she lost him when she had to go to an audition. 2018, in Netflix comedy special, John Mulaney, Kate Gorgeous at Radio City, Mulaney says Chuckley is a kidnap. If the Lindbergh baby had still toed boots, he'd still be alive today. In music, May 1932, just one day after the Lindbergh baby was discovered murdered, the political country recording artist Bob Miller under the suit of Bob Ferguson recorded two songs for Columbia on May 13, 1932. Remember the event, the song released on Columbia 15759D with the titles Charles A. Lindbergh Jr. and There's a New Star Up in Heaven. Baby Lindy is up there. In theater, the musical Baby Case dramatized the events of the Lindbergh trial and the media circus that surrounded it. William Cameron's full-length play, Shavala Sharp, is based on a story of the young British maid working at the home of Anne Lindbergh's mother. Sharp's contradictory testimony about her whereabouts and the night of the crime raised the suspicions of the police investigators and, the, and of the public, though after she killed herself, was found her alibi was indeed true, and there was talk the police were being heavy-handed as their tactics. In video games, Thimbleweed Park contains a character that confesses to the kidnapping. Thank you for listening to this second part of the Lindbergh kidnapping. Stay safe out there. Have a good day, and thank you for listening.